Hey everyone, this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Ian Hathaway. Ian is an analyst, strategic advisor, writer, and entrepreneur, and currently leads product development for ecosystem advisory at Techstars, where he works with founders and community leaders around the world to support their path towards building better tech ecosystems. He's also the co-author of The Startup Community Way, a book on building entrepreneurial ecosystems published in July 2020. If you know me, then you know I have a rule. I don't read new books. There are so many great ones out there that I haven't read yet that it feels counterproductive to take my chances with something that just came out. But I broke my rule for Ian's book and I couldn't be happier I did. I was initially introduced to Ian by Nicolas Conan, director of The Family and writer at European Streets, to chat about the book and my obsession with building technology ecosystems. That said, Ian is a fascinating guest, so this conversation ended up covering so much more. We start by discussing why artists don't like when people fuck with their art and Ian's writing process. Then we go into the book, why startup communities are complex adaptive systems, and why everyone should play positive sound games. After that, we move into Europe's technology ecosystem, underrated hubs, and policy suggestions, and we wrap up the conversation by talking about coaching and how it changed Ian's life. If you are as obsessed about writing, entrepreneurship, and startup communities as I am, then this conversation won't disappoint. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Hey, Ian, how are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the Seed Table podcast. I'm a big fan of your writing, so it's an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So writing is your art, and it's my art as well. So, so let's me, let me ask you this. Why do you think artists don't like it when people fuck with their art? <laughs> well, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, so... Uh, you're referring to a blog post uh, that I wrote. I've had this amazing coach named Ray Foote, who is a hero to me. And in our first meeting, you know, I was kind of deciding whether I should do the coaching or not, you know, whether I could afford it, you know, uh, Ray is expensive and rightly so. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do this and I'll know, I'll know if he's for me. And at the time I was, you know, there was a whole bunch of, I was working on a major writing project and there was just like some drama around it. There were a bunch of different people's agendas who were involved, who actually weren't, who weren't doing the work itself, but would benefit from it, wanted to be a part of it and so on. And it was really causing me a bunch of angst. And so I talked to Ray and he said, you know, in this first conversation, he said, I checked you out and, um, you know, you're an artist. And I said, okay. And he said, well, you know, writing is your art and you're pissed off because people are fucking with your art. And it just like blew me back. And so, and he's right. Art is a craft. My writing is a, I do many things, but my writing is my craft. And because of that, I don't like it when people fuck with it. Very similar to how founders feel about their companies, about their products, right? And so that has, that's like a lifelong framework for me. It's like knowing what your art is and realizing that you don't like it when people fuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
In your blog, you're a very prolific writer and you wrote this book, which is the reason we're talking about in your blog, you do this extremely data-driven deep dives on technology and startups, but you also write very personal things like this post you mentioned. You cover sleep, turning 40, parenthood, art. Have you thought about why you cover these things and how you do you balance these two sides of your persona? So I have realized well so it's writing about personal things is really an embrace of who i am not everyone is meant to be that expressive about their personal life feelings thoughts but it's me you know it's authentically me my leadership style is to be vulnerable right and what that means to me is being transparent not only talking about the good things but really talking about the things i struggle with And through that, it's, you know, I'm expressing myself, which is me, but my, but there's a broader hope, which is that someone out there who, who maybe is more reserved or doesn't feel like they can express themselves openly, maybe they'll be seen through that messaging. My co-author, Brad Feld, who is a remarkable person, you know, he's been, He's most known for the success he's had in business and entrepreneurship and as a VC. But to me, Brad's transparency and and the raw uh, emotion that he talks about, particularly around mental health and depression, is what really uh, resonates with a lot of people. And I feel like maybe by osmosis or just observing that, Brad shows people that it's okay, even for people like him, to talk about weakness about vulnerability. And so, yeah, for those reasons, I feel like it's just a part of who I am and what I want to write about. And it's interesting. So as much as I love some of the intellectual stuff I write, and as much as I can be impressed with some insight I've created, those are the posts that people actually respond best to. Uh, I guess we're all humans. Uh, Is that a leadership style you developed over time or that you mimicked from Brad or... How it came to be? No, I just, well, you know, as I said before, I, I believe it's just, it's part of who I am. And so it's more of an embrace of, instead of being a leader that is maybe typified in, in movies or in business books, that's who I am. And what I've learned is that, and maybe where some of this encouragement has come, is really from the people that I'm leading, their response to it. I feel like the teams that I've built and work with have responded so much stronger and more positively, uh, more productively to leading through vulnerability, leading through transparency, building trust than, you know, top-down dictates ever could. Now that may not work for all teams, all people, all companies, but in my experience, it's worked for me. And so, you know, that's, you know, I use this, uh, like Ben, ben Horowitz recently wrote this book called What You Do Is Who You Are. And it's really a book about culture and it's awesome. And his whole major point is, look, people can talk about culture all day, what their company culture is, but the cult- company culture is actually a revealed thing. It's not a spoken thing. And what you do is who you are. And so I guess, you know, flipping that around a little bit is that I'm, you know, through my leadership, I'm, I'm revealing who I am and, and who I am is someone who wants to have trusting, meaningful relationships with people in the context of work. 
it never felt natural to me to put on, you know, put on a work face and, you know, a personal face. I, I just want to be one face. This is me. And I'm going to bring that into all of the ways in which I engage the world and other people. That's sort of the ideal situation, right? Not have a work persona and a private persona and a public persona. Uh, just have one persona and, and be yourself all the time. But it's very hard to, to do. Like, I, I try and I, I think I am very much privately like I am in public, but it's so hard. I still see this sort of dissonance between the two. Why do you think it's so hard? Well, I mean, well, I can speak from my experience. It was always about wanting to do what I thought other people, doing what I thought other people wanted me to do. And I don't know what it's like to be other people, but I can tell you that not being my authentic self is painful. You know, I can feel it uh, in my body. There, you know, I guess you would call like a psychosomatic response where it just doesn't feel good to me. And so I would do things and I continue to do things that feel wrong to me that I think someone else wants me to do. My mission is to do less of that. But I feel like the feedback I'm getting that if you can lead with the courage, you know, I'm using this word vulnerability, like I lead with that. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes you think, man, what if I get rejected? You know, there might be, uh, you know, a manager, leader, customer, client who doesn't respond well to that. But I feel like the response has been almost entirely positive. Like even there are moments where I'm like, oh shit, this person isn't going to like that. And then they do and it breaks them down. And then they kind of lift that, you know, that armor that they have in that second persona. So I don't know, sometimes I'll get it wrong, but mostly it's been right. And I think back to your question about why is it so hard is that people fear rejection. They fear reprisal and they're, and they're assuming that other people don't want to, you know, to lead in the way that I described. And, and I just actually anecdotally, I think that's incorrect. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for playing with me on this one. Um, let's go back to, <laughs> to, to writing a bit. So I'm very curious about your writing process and what's that like? Specifically, how do you collect and digest information? And the reason I ask is that I got a ton of value from the reference material in your book, on top of the book, of course. And that's not normal. I usually skip those reference, references or don't even care about them. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, we can get into my background a little bit later if you want, but I took, I like to describe it as I took the scenic route into tech and startups. So I'm actually an economist. The first phase of my career, I worked for big economic policy institutions. So I was an you know, economist at the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, the World Trade Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. So that's kind of the background I come from. So I was trained to be thorough and accurate. And part of that process is reviewing everything that's, to the extent you can discover it, everything that's been said about a topic. One of the, one of the limitations of the startup world, and we can talk a lot about analysis in the startup world, is that people move quickly. There's a lot of inductive reasoning involved, like, hey, I've got some data that tells this story, this is the truth. And I actually think inductive reasoning is a good way to go through life, but you also need, um, it's the dynamic between the deductive, the bottom, the top down, you know, using theory to guide. So my process for something like this is 
you know, I cleared a couple months of my schedule and said, okay, time to learn everything there is to know about, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystems, what people are saying. And so it's, you know, it's a process that's emergent, right? The, as I read more, it leads to other linkages and, you know, that leads to new ones. And so lots of reading, lots of digesting, note-taking, lots of talking to people who are living this, who have opinions about it, following blogs, that sort of thing. It's a very nonlinear process. So in order to absorb, I mean, this book could have, so from beginning to end, it was three years. It's not as if, you know, I and Brad were working on this nonstop for three years. In fact, there were two huge hiatuses involved. And I'm okay with that process. Some people would like to sprint things through. You know, I could have easily gone through this research process and said, okay, I think I have, I can at least synthesize everything that's going on here and put it in a more dressed up framework than maybe a typical business book and then put it out. But we wouldn't have said anything transformational. It wouldn't have been as good. And so while there can be pressures, whether it's internal or external, to move quickly and say things quickly on an established timeline, I'm a way more patient. And I bring that into everything I do. And so my result was, well, going to read a lot of stuff, going to reach out to interesting people, going to follow the evidence where it goes, going to throw away a lot of words. I mean, I think we threw away something like 60,000 words, which is actually an entire book. It's just still sitting there, could be (laughs) turned into lots of blog posts and stuff. And that's okay. I'm okay with that process. That process of emergence, nonlinearity, being humble and curious actually applies to the topic, one of the topics we're going to discuss today, which is building startups and building startup communities. Tell me a bit more about how uh, your note-taking system, because you're absorbing all this information in a bunch of different formats. So papers, books, interviews, conversations, how do you put everything together? It's pretty meticulous. So (laughs) I... So when I speak with people, I try to be present and I just write down big ideas. I like to walk away with big ideas on things. And so, you know, you and I will cover a number of topics, but six months from now, I'm going to remember a couple of things that will be lasting. I can go back and listen to this podcast when it's out and absorb more of that and new memories will spark. But I like to think of things as like the big idea. What was the big idea or two from that movie, that book? you know, that paper. So back to more specifically the process, especially written materials, I do a lot of highlighting, a lot of note taking. I then aggregate that up. I actually build huge documents where I will actually write the things that I've highlighted or clipped or taken notes. I will then write those things up with analysis around it. So there's like all these little mini essays that I have. I mean, hundreds of, I know thousands of pages of these because for me, that process of writing it back out, explaining it in my own words. It's sort of like in university, people create a study guide for a big exam. And if you've done a good job, you actually don't need the study guide because the process of creating that has, has given you the knowledge you need. And that's really similar to my process. So there's, I don't know, someday I'll go through this massive, massive drive I have of notes and papers and and it'll be fun to kind of relive some of those memories. Maybe it will be painful in certain instances, but yeah. It's like building uh, like a second brain. Huh? 
So the, the book was three years in the making. Did you have a time when you said, like, fuck it, I'm over this thing? Yeah, most of the time. I mean, this was painful, right? So first of all, you know, Brad and I had never worked on anything together before this. We chose, you know, a big project to dive in together. We also have different brains and different way of organizing the method of production. And so it took us some time to hit our stride. We also felt like, you know, for a while there, we were on this conventional path. Once we abandoned that and I sort of went on this spiritual quest to find what is the answer, I discovered this, this framework called complex adaptive systems. I'm not a system scientist. For people familiar with this who are, you'll understand that it's not, it's not the easiest thing to absorb. So for me, it took some time to actually first discover it, then understand it, uh, and then actually go deeper in the understanding to the point where I could write about it for a, you know, for a lay audience. This is meant to be understood by people who have no background in this. That's a long time. So once, so once the complexity was sort of discovered and the idea clicked like, yes, this is what we need to do, and all the massive reading and digesting and speaking that went along with that. Then writing up a first draft around complexity and realizing when thought we had a book and just the self um, awareness and the humility to say, no, this is terrible. So if I can explain it, our book was a bunch of very deep, very thorough chapters. And it was like writing very well-researched, comprehensive essays on, on subject A, B, C, D. But, the, but as a story, it was shit. And that realization was just devastating to me because we're now years into it. And I'm sick of talking about it. I'm sick of people, you know, talking about fucking with art, people saying, where is this? This was supposed to be out a while ago. The publisher, you know, where, what's taking you so long? I'm just sick of it. And then one day there was this epiphany and this all happened in the very end, two months, we went from like the low point to the draft being finished. What we did was we said, okay, here are the chapter names. Let's write a little summary. And here's all the subtitles and a little subsections within the chapters and what they say. We literally put them all into a matrix and a spreadsheet and just stared at it and thought it. And we played a little chess game. It was a Google doc. So Brad and I, you know, I was living in London, he was in Boulder, Colorado, so that we could work collaboratively. And we just started moving the little pieces around and all of a sudden a story emerged and it was like, I mean, getting the chills talking about it. And then boom, we had a book and we wrapped it up and got it out as quick as possible. I mean, that was still another, you know, eight, nine months till the book came out, but it was just like this moment. And that's the thing that is fascinating about, I even wrote a blog post about this, that's, you know, that process describes is a complex system. Uh, there's constant pressure being applied. It seems like progress isn't being made. And then boom, you go through a phase change. One day we did not have a book that anyone wanted to read. And the next day we did. And so this was a nonlinear progression. And that's a huge lesson for entrepreneurs, community builders, um, which will, should feel familiar to them. We've been hinting at the book and what's it about for about 
20 minutes now. So before diving deeper into it, can you lay out the central message of the startup community way and then we'll dive into it? Yeah, so the central message is that, well, there's maybe two. The first is, why do we care about startup communities? Startup communities exist so that entrepreneurs will succeed. It's about a group of people who are committed to a place and a time and to the cause and just want to be helpful. The central uh, thesis of the book is that startup communities are complex adaptive systems, which means they're highly uncertain. They're not deterministic, right? Input A plus process B gets you output C and then outcome D. That's not the way these systems work. The reason why we felt it was a crucial time to do this was so Brad wrote this book, Startup Communities, in 2012. It was really focused at practitioners, entrepreneurs, community builders, people working with entrepreneurs on a daily basis. It was kind of a, a what and a how about startup communities, how to get things going. As we've gone through this huge boom era for technology, entrepreneurship, and, and economic growth generally, a bunch of new actors have gotten involved not just the scope, but also the magnitude with which they're getting involved. Governments, corporations, universities, investors, all of these things are growing. Much more resources are coming at, well, a related but distinct concept of entrepreneurial ecosystems. And what we realized, you know, was these organizations are, are engaging uh, in a hierarchical top-down manner um, trying to control and not understanding the behavior of people, groups, and the outcomes in these systems, which are highly nonlinear, power law distributions, and so on. And so it was more than, you know, look, one, one group is capable of understanding this bottom-up phenomenon, and the other group is not capable. It's that the organizational structures and incentives of the organizations themselves prevents them from engaging or makes it more difficult for them to engage in this way. You know, even for, let's say, a corporate innovation manager or an economic development official who actually engages with the startup community, maybe in a non-official capacity as an individual, maybe they mentor, maybe they show up to events, they still are accountable to the hierarchy and the needs and the incentives of the hierarchy. And so our message is we need to educate people. We need to educate that second group on that these systems are inherently uncertain. So when entrepreneurs and community builders say, Hey, experimentation and failure bottom up, you know, we don't know what's going to work and what's not, it's hard to measure all of these things that make those types of organizations panic our message is this is inherent and there's, and if you believe you're in control, it's an illusion. And so you've got to change the way you think about this and engage. And we decided that it was worth spending an entire book laying out that theory, explaining these phenomena as systems that are not deterministic, that can't be controlled, that have nonlinear outcomes that, you know, the autonomous interaction of the people involved actually produces creative value in ways that we could never imagine, we could never plan, we could never predict. One of the things we have on the cover, the back cover, is that 
even Silicon Valley couldn't recreate itself today. So stop trying to recreate Silicon Valley. That's a whole other vector we could go down, but I'll sort of park it there. And that's kind of the, the grand message. One of, one of the things that I got from your book is that despite this being, uh, or startup communities, communities being a complex act, it's something that are extremely hard to measure, extremely hard to understand, extremely hard to get from point A to point B because it's nonlinear. It all starts with entrepreneurs, right? Like entrepreneurs are the center of it. And my question is like, why entrepreneurs are not, say, capital, for instance, because everyone thinks about this talent and capital relationship as a chicken and egg problem, but you don't. For you, it clearly starts with founders. Well, this could be an entire hour discussion. <laughs> Let me just say a couple of things. If I took a billion in venture capital and dropped it off in the middle of Antarctica, would we have high productive entrepreneurship? No, because the other resources are missing. Secondly, I, I know that's a ridiculous example, but it's helpful to make this point. And this is, by the way, it's not to dismiss the concerns of entrepreneurs in many regions where there, where there are many of those other resources, but capital is missing. That is a real thing. But our overall message is that's one resource. Secondly, it ignores that capital tends to follow entrepreneurial success. There are very good reasons why especially if we're talking about high growth venture-backed entrepreneurship in particular, there, there are very good reasons why that concentrates geographically. We see some diffusion in that going on in this latest cycle, but there's even greater reason why the venture investors themselves are, are more concentrated. I, I can see that dispersing some, but that's always going to be a challenge. And so while we can move the needle on that, if there are, let's say, in Sofia, Bulgaria, if there are multiple billion-dollar exits, would there eventually start to be a growth of seed and perhaps even Series A, Series B venture capitalists? Of course that would happen, but that comes much later. So this is one of the problems that's made. People look to this, the, the existing factors in successful ecosystems and equate that with what it takes to become successful, right? Venture capital developed throughout the, you know, the 70s and 80s in Silicon Valley. Technological success preceded that. That's message number one. And number two, well, we believe that entrepreneurs are the center of everything. And regardless of what the resources you have in your community, whether you're destined to be the next London or Los Angeles or New York or Beijing, whether you actually have the full breadth of capabilities to be that, our message is that entrepreneurs in more places can increase the likelihood of success by being more collaborative, more supportive of each other. What success looks like will vary differently. The quantity, the velocity of that will vary. But importantly, this is something you're in control of. And that's a very powerful message to take forward. With those successes, then these resources can become attractive. There's a positive feedback loop that occurs. We dedicate a chapter talking about the sequencing, communities versus ecosystems. And so that's the basic idea. The third point I'll say on this is that an entrepreneurship community, 
a startup community that is not led by entrepreneurs is not a sustaining one. Ultimately, the entrepreneurs are the end users. And if the users are not finding value in it, then it's not valuable and, not, and, and it won't be lasting, regardless of how much government money is being thrown to support it. Let's go back to a second point. You mentioned this supportive spirit, and that's your, or what you guys, I think this is coined by Brad, the give first approach. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, so give first is something that I've become real, that I've grown to love once you spend time with it and understand it. The basic idea is that we should help each other without the expectation of something immediately in return from that person, right? It's not pure altruism in the sense of, I'm just going to give, 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 you know, all my time away to help people. I'm not going to ever expect to be compensated. I'm going to be homeless and without food. Like that's not it. The way I like to think about it is every time I invest my time and energy or capital or or network into an entrepreneur, I'm growing, I'm helping grow a system that I care about, which is called the global startup community. And the better off that is, the better off I'm going to be because I care about that. It's positive sum thinking. The second thing is that in entrepreneurship, especially today, information-driven, knowledge-driven economy, the most important factors are intangible ideas, specific knowledge, you know, relationships, cultural mindset, all of these things are intangible in nature. And so they're exchanged through human relationships. Another way to think about give first is that you're not taking a transactional approach to things. And when you do that, when you, when you do not take a transactional approach, the velocity with which those intangible resources can flow through the system is increased. And if you look back at the history of Silicon Valley, there's a lot that's been written on it, a bunch of different inputs, a bunch of different key leaders at critical times took a certain behavior. But my main takeaway from all of this, if there's one overarching lesson, it was that Silicon Valley, not today, but looking back in the 1960s, 50s, 60s, 70s, when things took off, was organized in such a way that people were very open. They the cause of advancing technology was more important than any one business or individual. There was this sort of a spirit of collaborative competition where people were competitive, but they were willing to help each other out. And that's really, you know, I think a close cousin to what give first is all about. How do we convince people that give first is the right approach? Because it's really not intuitive. So let's say you think about game theory and the, the prisoner's dilemma. Sort of the winning strategy is usually quoted as a state for that or blow for blow. Meaning, um, yes, you start by cooperating, but then like you mimic your opponent's play. So if they cooperate, you cooperate. If they don't, they then retaliate. This is sort of like how people naturally work instead of like a give first approach. So how can we convince more people to sort of take this give first approach and recreate these pockets of norms that helped Silicon Valley a couple of decades ago in other places? Yeah. So a couple of things to say on this. Um, the first on the research side and theory side. So evolutionary game theory says basically well, if I cooperate with you, you're more likely to cooperate with me if we know this is a repeated game. 
right? This isn't a one-off thing. Um, there's also a woman named Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in economics. She's actually not an economist. She was a political scientist and she won the Nobel Prize on cooperation. Her whole work on tragedy of the commons, which is, you know, how do common resources, you know, how do we prevent shared resources in a community that are scarce? How do we prevent them from being depleted? And her main message was, you know, repeated interactions builds trust. And so that's one of the, that's one of the ways, you know, I view a startup community as a public good, like the work that Eleanor Ostrom has written about. I actually wrote a blog post about this called the Nobel Prize in Startup Communities. So I believe there's sufficient theory and even empirical work that talks about repeated interactions, engaging with a positive sum mind, mindset um, will lead to greater cooperation. I've even viewed this in, in practice. One of the communities that I've been working with the last you know, year and a half in Asia, when I first arrived, um, my impression was a lot of interesting entrepreneurship and technology going on all of it disaggregated, not a, not a strong centralizing force and definitely a transactional mindset. Give first was for suckers. You know, this, why would I help people? So one of the ways that I think we've been successful there is by just doing it, by demonstrating it over and over and over again. And what we learned was that people were, again, like kind of going back to one of the things we were talking about earlier is that people were responding positively. It was like, oh, you're helping me? And you don't want anything back? Oh. And so sure, there are going to be some of those actors who the thing they take from that lesson is, well, this person can be, I'm just going to extract from this person. But I don't think that's how most people function. They realize, oh, I, you know, maybe I have something to gain by helping others. And, you know, that so that's been sort of my experience, is just just doing it and then building a critical mass around that value system. When that grows sufficiently enough, it will attract more people to it. I'll give one really powerful anecdote around Give First, which is the very founding of Techstars. My co-author, Brad, is a co-founder of Techstars. I, I work at Techstars. And the founding of Techstars, it's a really interesting story. Brad, who's this super busy person, a lot of demands on his time, but he's incredibly generous with it. Back in, I guess, 2006, he, he did this thing called random days where once a month he would have 20 minutes with any person for any reason whatsoever. And David Cohen, who had this idea called Techstars written out, got on Brad's calendar and he walked in within 10 minutes. Brad said, I'm, I'm in, let's go. And so this is an example, you know, now Techstars is a huge company where it's, you know, and however many countries, 50 accelerators around the world, huge global footprint, massively influential in startups. And it all started because Brad was practicing give first. So this is a clear example. Look how much Brad got, got out of giving first. That's, that's quite an anecdote. Let's go back to technology ecosystems because it's, it's one of the topics that I'm sort of obsessed about. And until I read your book, I thought that there was a playbook someone would follow, uh, could follow, uh, which is the stop trying to recreate Silicon Valley thing you have on the, on the cover. And at least in the traditional sense of a playbook, there isn't one. So like inputs don't correlate with outputs, things can be controlled. Like 
outcomes are impossible to predict. But what do you think people uh, are convinced there is a playbook and spend resources, time, money, attention trying to go out with this playbook and run it? Because we like simple explanations for complex problems. Because we don't like admitting the limits of our understanding of the world. Because we don't like to feel like we aren't the masters of our destiny. You know, we really, I've observed this over and over and over again. It's why confidence sells. And, you know, having been engaged as a volunteer community builder, engaged on the economic side of this, what people want is a very simple, definitive explanation of what they need to do and when the result will happen. And it's always oversimplified. It's always the time, the time cycles, that's another huge thing, are just so unrealistic. Who wants to hear, hey, what I need you to do is give a bunch of your time, help each other on a regular basis for the next 10 years and something good will happen. I don't know what, but something good will happen by then. That's a tough sell. I wanna know in one year how many startups are gonna raise capital because of we do this one thing. And that's entirely the wrong way of thinking about it. So I think there are a lot of you know human cognitive and behavioral limitations that lead to this. And yeah, that's the best, that's the best I can come up with on that. <laughs> so if there is no playbook, imagine I'm a community builder in city X, like where do I start? Okay, let me answer a different question and then come back to that. What matters for me is, so our book is about, you know, principles and, and process, values, philosophy. We explain really the why, why things need to be done a certain way. I think Brad's first book is a lot of the what, like here's some ideas. But the thing that's missing from both, just as an inherent thing of it being these are books, there's only so much you can say, we need to do a lot more storytelling. And so if you believe in a lot of the principles we talk about, we could never provide a full catalog of here are the eight to 10 things to try. Like I've got a whole bunch of tools in my toolkit that we could go through. You know, I've got them all organized well, you know, on a, on a drive, you know, on my Dropbox or on a little wiki that, that we've built. And I could, you know, give some ideas to, to ecosystem builders about like, hey, you could try this, this will surface some things. But the reality is, I don't know what the outcome will be. I think the outcome will surface information about what's useful, what's not, which will lead you to the next thing. And so storytelling will become important because it's going to inspire the imagination. I, one of the, my dreams would be that we have a huge repository around the world in all these different languages of structured storytelling. We did this. This is what worked. This is what didn't. Here's what we learned. Here's what you might try. And that people can be inspired by that, connect with each other, try those things, knowing that, hey, this thing worked in 10 cities, but it might fail in my city, or this worked in my city and it's going to fail in 10 others. That's the nature of this because the local conditions are too different and we can't account for all the inputs. So, so that's kind of the, that's how I think about the interplay between kind of the theory and the practice. To your specific question about what should people do? Knowing, of course, that, you know, people are going to come at this with a bunch of different experience 
levels connectedness in the community. But if you use a, a generic person who's brand new to startups and just want, thinks this is cool and exciting, or, you know, let's say someone who works for a government agency and thinks that they should do more to, to support entrepreneurs and just wants to sort of understand. My main message is really simple. You need to show up and listen and start to understand what the needs are. It's just a lot of this has a lot of, has crossover from lean startup. Understand your customer, obsess over your customer's needs and think about what it is you know that can meet those needs for the customer. That's really what this is, knowing that the customer is the entrepreneur. Perfect. Um, going back to the tough sell and, and, and sort of cycles. Um, in your book, you quote or mention quite a bit Donella Meadows and her work on systems. I'm, I'm a big fan of her work. She has this article slash book called Leverage Points on Place to Intervene in a System. So let's let's spend a minute on this. Like. One of the main ways to intervene a system, according to her, is the, the length of delays relative to the rate of system changes, which is essentially a way of saying like the speed of, of feedback cycles. She gives this perfect example of, of there's a shower in a hotel and the, like the water temperature takes a minute to respond to a faucet twist. So this means that you'll end up going from hot to cold a million times before being able to just get it right, to get the temperature right. So there is a delay between the action and the feedback, so you constantly overshoot and undershoot. So this is a long preface to say, like in a system with long nonlinear changes and like slow cycles, how do you deal with measuring success? Mm. Wow. Okay, there's a lot to <laughs> unpack with that. I mean, one thing to say about delays, not that it's been fun to watch this. I would say it's been painful having what you just talked about in my mental model with COVID, especially in America, where I've just come back to you, there was a very clear moment where I saw images of a beach and it was super crowded. This was months ago. And I said, okay, there's going to be a huge spike in COVID there in three months. And the reason the beach, or sorry, three weeks, the reason the uh, beach became crowded in the first place is because the initial lockdown muted the spread of the disease. The hospitals, which were going to be overcrowded, were not crowded. People not realizing the counterfactual is, well, the reason they're not crowded is because we shut down the economy and society. So then they decided, well, you know, that's no problem. And so then they went out and pretended like things were okay. So there are these delays in action and impact. And then sure enough, one by one, all of these communities, huge spikes in COVID. So, um, and that's over a relatively short time cycle. You're talking about these long time cycles. So wrapping it back to Donella Meadows and her leverage points, which we sort of, she has 12, we kind of condense them into four for communities. We say the least impactful is kind of like the things that we can really see, the tangible things like capital, number of startups, you know, and that sort of thing. Second, we talk about information flows, feedback loops, making sure that it's, you know, things are transparent, information is flowing, people know what's happening. And then we get into the next two, which is sort of system, system behaviors and structures. And then finally, the underlying attitudes, mental models, and values of the people involved. So overall, what leads to long-term change 
is to change the way that people think and behave. That takes a very long time. Back to the measurement issue, we write an entire chapter on this. And one of the things that we talk about is, well, if you believe that, so for us, you know, a vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem at the heart of it is high performing startups, right? And the feedback there is that as these companies succeed, more resources are attracted and there's, this is where you get these exponential growth outcomes. But at the heart of that, as I said before, we believe that a supportive community helping entrepreneurs succeed will more likely lead to those entrepreneurial successes, which leads to that virtuous cycle. At the heart of that, structuring interventions, so how do you, how do you initiate change, how do you improve things, we want to create an environment where people are more trusting, more collaborative, have more positive outlook about entrepreneurship as a viable career path, people willing to help each other, good information exchange is flowing between people, and on and on and on. The best way I've worked out to do that is to is the good old-fashioned way of surveying people, following them over a period of time, structuring that data collection around those interventions, seeing how people are responding to certain things versus others. The problem with all of that, of course, and then of course, you know, establishing, measuring established relationships, building up network graphs, looking at who's influential in a community and how system structure is changing, all of that. I'm talking about huge data projects. These are enormous. Um, going back to something we just talked about earlier, people wanting quick fixes, downloading a data set of venture deals and saying this is the performance of an ecosystem is entirely a lazy way to do it. I've done reports where we looked at venture capital by city, and I'm very clear of saying this is what I'm measuring is venture capital by city. I'm not talking about the underlying performance of a, of a community. And so, and besides, that's a temporal outcome to begin with. It's, we, we care about the, is the process. Like, <laughs> so, so the harsh reality is that just like the changes that matter most taking a long time to unfold, so do the measurements. We have to measure the way people think and behave. It's best if we can uh, observe the same people over a long period of time, and that requires resources, it requires you know, patience, and it requires a real commitment of wanting to know what the answers are and how to improve. And in my experience, very few communities are willing to make that investment. I'm gonna throw a question your way that oversimplifies things, so don't kill me, please. <laughs> so imagine a dashboard to measure the health of a tech ecosystem. What sort of KPIs would you have and which time skills and what warning labels would you have? A dashboard of KPIs. Well, I mean, you could easily ingest some of these quantitative things we talked about, right? You could, you could get at some quantities around startups who have raised funding. You know, when people count startups in a community, it gets tricky because they'll pull from like Crunchbase and it's not clear that's a stock, not a flow. And many of those companies have failed, but we don't register that. So that that's a whole other thing, you know, and we could talk about, you know, things. I mean, I've built these dashboards, like we maintain these stats, some of these dashboards at Techstars and, you know, it's things like number of engineers, college graduates. If you want to take it internationally, we would look at things like system of laws, macroeconomic stability, you know, percentage of high tech, 
companies, you know, a whole bunch of things, companies that are in the global fortune 2000 or whatever, all these, all these factors we can gather. We also look at things like quality of life and that sort of thing. These are cross-sectional comparisons. We do them at the city and country level. However, the dashboard that I would want, the dream, the dream data set is to really have well-populated samples on the qualitative things. Things like how easy is it to get an introduction to a credible investor? How easy is it to find a co-founder? You know, how, how, I mean, I view the ecosystem as a platform for entrepreneurs to find the resources they need. So it's really about the ease or the difficulty with which it is to find those things. I'd also want to get a sense of attitudes. Like, you know, do people believe in give this notion of give first, right? Do they, are entrepreneurs viewed as, you know, is ambition viewed favorably in society? Because ultimately, if you believe in the system, you have to look at how the parts of the system are interacting. That's what describes system performance, not the parts. So the first thing I talked about is the parts. You got to somehow get at the interactions, hard to do. But at the root of this are human beings and we are complex individuals. And so we're emotional beings. We have limited rationality. And so understanding the aid that the agents in this system are humans, understanding what, how they think and feel is important too. So very long winded way of saying my dream data set is to create the dashboard you described a lot of people collecting these data points, but then to really to complement that with credible data collection on some of these qualitative factors, you know, it would be best if we could measure established relationships, actual, you know, mentor, actual investor, actual former employee relationships, that kind of thing. But we could, you know, we could make some progress with surveys, assuming we talk to the right people. And so a mix of qualitative and quantitative is sort of the dream data set dashboard. Let's, I'm going to pull us out of the complex systems, uh, rabbit hole, and, and let's go into Europe. So let's, you lived in London for half a decade, right? Yeah. So you know a thing or two about the tax scene over here. So first sort of uh, general question, are you long or short Europe? I'm long Europe. I'm actually really, I mean, I'm long everywhere, but I'm long Europe for a few reasons. Nothing against America, but I'm American, obviously. I think Europe is the best place to live. And as people, as people t are reevaluating what's important in life, I think people will embrace that more. My, I mean, my wife and I, we live in a beautiful place. We live in Santa Barbara, California, but we both were saying, you know, when our part of the, the big part of the reason we came home is so that our children could be near family. You know, we, both of our families are here, but we said, without a doubt, we're going to move back to Europe when our kids are older, because I think it's a fantastic place to live. There's a lot of talented Europeans who are spread throughout the United States and other places. Again, this crisis has people questioning where they are. If I were a European living in Trump's America through all the bullshit that comes along with that, I'd be thinking really hard about why I'm in 
that country because the, of course it's much bigger than Trump, right? Trump is the result, not the cause. So there's all of that. To get a little more specific, one of the things that, well, there's two things I wanna say about Europe, specifically what I've observed with startups is that, remember this is a long cycle. A lot of progress has happened in a short amount of time. People want to be Silicon Valley or whatever, the output of Silicon Valley today, it's just gonna take a long time. You know, you look especially at London, like it's one of the top three hubs in the world, you know? There are other places like Sweden, you know, even Amsterdam, like high, high output, you know, Berlin has had a bunch of huge exits. Like it takes a long time for then those, those successes to feed back through. London's had a lot of activity, but not tons of huge successes yet. I think there's going to be a bunch of them coming soon. Just takes time. And it's another 10 years for those to spin out into their own new things. The second thing I would say, this is, you know, could be refuted. But I think that the regulatory nature of Europe, which has traditionally been bad for tech, could be a possible advantage as technology moves into more traditionally non-digital sectors, traditionally regulate, highly regulated sectors like finance, healthcare, and so on. My hypothesis is that Europe will be better positioned to deal with technology and highly regulated sectors because of its familiarity of dealing with those. That's a broad statement. We'll have to check back in 10 years or so to see if I'm right, but I view those as one of the things. So for those things, you know, Europe being a great place, the diaspora, you know, coming back, the fact that success is actually already happening. It's just too easy to look to Silicon Valley or Asia, these super capital intensive places. There are a number of challenges. I do believe risk aversion is one. There's a bunch of things that could be done around unlocking more LP capital into the local investment funds and so on. But I think Europe's great and I I think the future's bright. You mentioned Berlin, London, Amsterdam, Stockholm. What are some underrated uh, European technology hubs? Well, um, couching this in my uh, with the with the with the statement that I'm not really deeply embedded in any of them, so I don't want to overgeneralize. But just from just from some limited exposure, what people, what what friends and colleagues have told me, things I've seen with my own eyes, and some data points, you know, there are a couple ways to think about it. Which places are seeing demonstrable growth? So like Milan randomly is one of those. I think there's a ton of growth and activity there. I mean, it depends what you think about an underrated place. Like, are we, are we assuming that we're saying London, Stockholm, Paris, Berlin, Barcelona, Amsterdam, are these all generally accepted as high-performing hubs, but sort of underneath that layer, like I said, a, a Milan. You know, I mentioned before Sofia, Bulgaria. It's a highly collaborative place. Ambition is high. People want to change. And you can't really understand that unless you, that's again, going back to that qualitative information. One of the things that I've observed is by, you can learn a lot by going to a place, spending time meeting with people. You're not going to get all of the things right, but you can pick up on a lot. If you spend you know, the next time you're going on, well, maybe a bad timing to talk about this, but the next time you go on a holiday somewhere and you're interested in ecosystems and you want to grow your network, go a day early, do some Googling, use your network, see who you can connect with. But 
see how quickly and easily it is that you can set up a day of interesting meetings. If it's easy, that, that gives me positive, that, that's a, that gives me some hope about the ecosystem. It tells me it's collaborative and open. That's a good thing. But just by sitting with people, you're going to learn, you know, who are the, who are the key actors? Are they, do the investors hold the power? Are they former entrepreneurs and operators who understand how this game works and operate in a more network based way? Or are the rich people holding the keys and they've made their money in manufacturing and resources in real estate, right? You can figure out those dynamics pretty quickly. A couple of other places in Europe that I think are interesting empirically, but not having observed them personally, are smaller hubs. I'm interested in smaller, particularly university towns like uh, Cambridge and Oxford. When you look at them on a per capita basis, they're actually off the charts. You know, like very, very impressive amount of venture-backed startup activity happens in those communities, although the focus is on London and bigger hubs when people look at, when people look at the absolute numbers. Uh, there's a small coastal community in, in Finland called Ulu, which also <laughs> registers pretty high. I guess it was a former Nokia outpost. I did some reading about it. It seems like the government has basically said, hey, now that this Nokia thing went away, let's double down on these investments here and let's try to turn this into a hub. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's a bunch of different stuff. Um, I would recommend, by the way, I'd, I'd like to plug a news outlet if you're not familiar with it. It's called Sifted, sifted.eu. It's a spin out from the Financial Times. They're telling a bunch of these stories about what's going on in Europe. And I think what they're trying to create is unique globally um, in tech journalism, startup journalism. It's not about reporting deals like Crunchbase. It's about telling stories about what's really happening. And so that would be a good place to, to find out about what's happening around Europe. Yep. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a sifted reader. Uh, I wrote a couple times for them and it's, I'm a big fan of this. this have, they have this unique approach where it's not just X raised uh, 5 million. And if you go to, let's say, EU startups, it's always the same iteration of company and they, they do like races, scored, snapped, and then the amount and then the Series A seed. And it's, that's all they write about, which provides zero value. Like I can get that from, from a spreadsheet. Yeah, and I think, and also too, just recognizing the new, unique culture of in Europe, which is, you know, the, I think the American way is to be loud about funding rounds, right? In Europe, people are more reserved about it. And so if a publication, not to say that TechCrunch is entirely this, but it's, a lot of it is about funding round announcements. And so if it's built around that, that's what becomes prioritized rather than building great companies. And so I think for those reasons, you know, it's important that it's a European voice. A lot of Americans don't understand that. You know, like, for example, in France, I learned that an accelerator with a demo day actually a challenge culturally because many of the investors like to feel that they're getting exclusive access to companies. Whereas a demo day being extremely open, that's, a, so that's an American thing. And sometimes we Americans some of the values from entrepreneurship that we've exported around the world are positive. We have less of the legacy of the aristocracy and other you know, long family histories as kind of the old, old Europe, but, but some of them are, are, are okay and they're going to be lasting. And so it's, I think having that unique European voices, it's great for the community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that I appreciate from TechCrunch 
is their work around regulation. They, they, they spend a lot of time trying to distill that for, for audiences. And, and you mentioned uh, regulation being sort of one of the reasons you are along Europe or how Europe can learn from, from regulation. So you also wrote this post on five lessons for policymakers in the US. What would those lessons be for European policymakers? Oh yeah, so I recently wrote a post which was targeted at U.S. policymakers from the Startup Community Way, five lessons for U.S. policymakers, but I think this applies generally. The first is thinking in systems, right? So don't take this reductionist approach, which we apply to a lot of policymaking, a lot of economics models. You got to think in systems, focus on the integration of the parts, not the parts themselves. It's not just about having more you know, accelerators, incubators, investors, programs, whatever. It's about how is this whole thing coming together and performing as a group. Second thing, recognizing there's more than one type of capital. In the book, we talked about the seven capitals. We discussed that a little bit earlier. People are really focused on financial capital, which by the way, let me remind people, the best type of financial capital is revenue from customers, not equity financing from investors and on and on. So a number of these capitals, like institutional capital, physical capital, is actually in the domain of governments. And one of the things that governments love to do is invest in beautiful buildings, not realizing that, hey, actually your tax and regulatory policy needs work, and only you can change that. Other people can build buildings, but the allure is that it's, uh, you know, it's a sexy thing and people get in photo, photo opportunities in newspapers for that. The third thing, which is very related, support people and networks over buildings uh, and programs. And so basically, you know, look, this is this idea that in the, in the knowledge economy and fast moving startup world, look to enable individuals who have credibility in the community, have existing networks. It can be as simple as asking them what kind of obstacles are in their way. It could be funding those types of bottom-up organizations rather than sticking a new government program in from the top down, which has typically the effect of it's the wrong thing. And because it's so overly resourced, it sucks the oxygen out of the ecosystem and forces those effective but underfunded things to fail. Next thing would be push funding to states and localities. So in this instance, just, you know, the further away that policymakers are from the actual end users, the less they know about, you know, what's actually needed, how to capture feedbacks and so on. So pushing that out as far as possible. So fifth and final thing is to prioritize agile experimentation and learning over rigid planning and execution. So just the main thing there, we've talked about it a bunch, is these are complex systems. You don't know what's going to work. We've got some ideas about how we can surface those answers, but top-down approaches where you're expecting, you know, input equals output is entirely the wrong way to think about it. So those five things apply to Europe as well. Actually, the map and just put them in Europe. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And I w one extra thing that uh, I I'm going to add, which is understand the uh, second-order consequences of your actions, which is part of your fifth one. But let's, let's switch gears a bit uh, and, and let's go into something we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, which is coaching. You've written about the importance of coaching and, and the role it played in your life. So I'd love to understand why and why you started looking for a coach and what, how he helped you. 
Yeah. So let me uh, first juxtapose the difference between therapy and coaching. So I recommend both. Unless you grew up in a perfect family, which most people don't. I certainly did not love my family, but not perfect. You know, we have things from our past that, you know, affect us today. Therapy is really about diving back into that past and saying, well, what made me the way I am and how do I sort of forgive and release that trauma that I had as a child, right? That's essentially what it all comes down to. Coaching is more about forward movement. Where do you want to go? Who do you want to be? My coach, Ray, who I mentioned earlier, talks about the difference between advice, mentorship, and coaching. And a lot of these terms get mixed up. You know, advisory is me telling you what to do, right? Mentorship, I think, means a few, th- you know, in the world of startups, mentor- when we use mentorship, we can think about advice as well. Like, you know, it, it's basically non-paid person who's helping me, who has expertise in something. But mentorship more traditionally is, Whereas advisory is do what I say, right? Mentorship is more follow what I've done. And that's why serial successful entrepreneurs make great mentors because they have walked the walk and it's not just the information they provide. Some serial entrepreneurs are toxic and have terrible advice and ideas. In fact, many do. That's probably the biggest challenge in Europe is bad actors, actually, um, and which we can take for granted in the U.S. a bunch. So, but that's a whole other topic. Maybe we should, maybe we should have addressed that more fully. But you know, so, so advisors, you know, do what I do what I say. Mentors follow what I do. Coaches are they really are like a sounding board for you. And it's in that, in that way, it's like therapy, but it's also about forward movement. It's about you identifying what you want and someone holding you accountable for moving forward. One of the frameworks that Ray taught me, which I love is separating my wants and my needs. Very simple. What you realize is that you put way too many of your wants into the need category. And when you have someone who's, who kind of pushes that thinking and challenges you to be more clear about that, it makes the priorities, you know, the, the priorities become more clear and then you can put your energy into that. So especially, so, you know, I guess like, so for entrepreneurs, I, you know, I think this is an industry that will grow entrepreneur uh, coaches, executive coaches that are focused specifically on entrepreneurs. I have a great recommendation for people. There's a company called Reboot. Uh, a man named Jerry Colonna, who wrote this book called Reboot. It's recently out last year. He's a master. He's building this company that's all around coaching for entrepreneurship and other creatives. Jerry was actually a former venture capitalist. His, his partner was Fred Wilson. So before Fred Wilson did Union Square Ventures, he did, I guess, it, I think it was called Flatiron Partners. So this is Fred Wilson's former partner in venture capital who is now an executive coach for entrepreneurs, building a company around this, around radical self-inquiry. And so I encourage people, if this sounds appealing, to reach out to them. It's reboot.io, and they're fantastic. Now, how can, one, how can someone replicate coaching or the benefits of coaching at a fraction of the cost? Essentially, how can we democratize it? Because one of the things you were saying in the beginning is uh, I had to consider it because it's, it's expensive, right? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. So first of all, read Jerry's book. 
<laughs> it's, you know, 20 US dollars, 20 euros, and it's got a lot of exercises that you can follow. Secondly, folks can, you know, you can do some of the training for coaching. There's a bunch of online modules. I'm actually starting one next month. Not that I'm going to necessarily become a coach, but I want to incorporate the lessons from coaching into my leadership and, and, and relationships, personal relationships. What they teach you is about deep listening. It's all about the other person and dropping your agenda. So that's useful framework to take into all aspects of life. The third thing is to build a community. One of the other things that a colleague of mine recently started, not my idea, I'm just participating. You know, we have a leadership circle and we get together one Friday morning a month and we talk about our struggles as leaders. And, you know, and sometimes I talk a lot and sometimes I say almost nothing and I'm in listening mode. And so we can coach each other, right? It's a lot easier to see someone else's struggles where they're stuck and how they should move forward, even based on their own words, than it is for us to, to get, our, get ourselves out of our own traps. And that's what the whole thing is about. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to retain a professional coach. You can learn these tools. You can self-evaluate through this book I talked about. You can pick up some of these methodologies along the way with self-study, just like people do with coding and lots of other skills that they pick up. But then the key thing is about finding a group of people who want to engage in this way together. It's probably best that you're not working together and you don't even have to be in the same industries, right? Like this could come from different facets of life. I think people are um, facing many of the same struggles. So that would be my advice. I think that's a perfect uh, note to end on. Thank you so much Ian for your time. It was, it was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Hey, this is Gonsigan. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.